We are in our second round of our series called Context versus Conjecture. So if you're just joining, if this is your first week, you haven't missed a whole lot. This is our second round, and we're going to go ding, ding, and we're going to hit, put the next one up, self-examining judgment versus self-righteous judgmentalism. Um, we're going to be hitting Matthew 7, chapter, sorry, chapter 7, verse 1, and this is a big one. Judge not that you not be judged. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that in a conversation, in an angry blog post. I mean, you see it everywhere. And I want to, to set this thing up like this. We, we, we created this series not, not wanting to take pot shots at people that would disagree with us. We, we developed this to, to help us think about all of the issues and all of the filters and all of the prejudices that we have and that we look through when we study the Bible. And we will see, like, with this one and with the one that Ray talked about last week and the ones that we'll talk about in the next couple weeks, that, that the misunderstandings, the conjecture, the, the things that we think the Bible means, these are most often very honest, very real, very heartfelt convictions about what the Bible says. And so we, we want to take pains to make sure that we are reading the Bible as it speaks to us not as we want to understand it. We are prone to read in God's Word as we do everything else. We, we want to see what we want to see. And that doesn't go away when we study the Bible. So, so we're going we're gonna to hit this big conjecture. It goes like this. Conjecture number one. When people here judge not so that you won't be judged, they will come to the conclusion that we are not to make assessments of other people. We are not to make assessments of other people's beliefs or actions because all of these are created equal. All of these are equally valid. We are, we are not allowed to judge someone's opinion, someone's belief, someone's action. And, they, and, we want to, and we so much want to hear Jesus confirm that. And this is what... This is what so much of modern culture wants to hear, judge not. Whew, finally, I'm off the hook. Jesus is saying, you, don't, you can't judge me. And you know, most people that, that, that come to this conclusion, they're, they're, they're thrilled to find out that Jesus is a moral progressive. They are thrilled to discover that, <clears throat> that Jesus thinks just like they do. Saying, judge not. That's what I've been trying to tell my friends my whole life. That's what I've been trying to tell my parents since I was 13. That's what I've been trying to tell my teachers. You can't judge me. You can't give me that grade on that paper. Jesus says, judge not. <clears throat> How's that working for you? Um, <clears throat> I'll throw up a quote here. Anyone heard of Deepak Chopra? Just someone I've been looking at recently. He said this, attractive people judge neither themselves nor others. So it is, it is put toward us that in order to be the most attractive, in order to be the most relevant, in order to be the most 
the best person that you can be. In fact, you, sh- you can't judge yourself. You can't determine anything that you do is right or wrong. And you certainly can't say anything about anybody else. Well, for the next 40 minutes, I'm going to push on this thesis. I'm gonna, we're going to test this one. And then Nietzsche's always good for a nice quote. Um, Convictions are more dangerous enemies of truth than lies. See, there, there, there's something that, that we're afraid of when we hear the word judge. So we're going to talk about why, why is that? Why, why, why is this word judge so intimidating? Why are we so quick to dismiss it? Why are we so grateful to interpret this verse the way that we want to and say that Jesus is saying we can't know right and wrong. So we cannot judge ourselves. and We certainly can't judge other people. In fact, it's, it's put forth as people misunderstand this, judge not that you not be judged, that we can actually <clears throat> get off easier if we don't judge others. It's actually turned back on itself. It's like we can actually not be assessed or not be judged if we will simply not do that for others. So we're going to get into why that is, why that's such a conjecture as well. Um, let's, let, let, let's read James 1 through 7 and we'll, we'll keep going. Judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment that you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Most people stop reading after verse 2. And in most cases, it goes like this. People do not have rational, studied responses to why judge not that you not be judged actually applies to the conjecture that they're making. It is most often an emotional reaction saying, you can't judge me. Don't judge me. The Bible says judge not. It's the, it's the trump card. It is the conversation stopper to any conversation that you're starting to make you feel uncomfortable. <clears throat> it often goes like this. The Bible says you can't judge, which is not true when you see the rest of Scripture. We're going to be talking about that too. Second, it says you're not perfect yourself. People will take from this that you can't judge me, not just because the Bible doesn't, says you can't, but also because you're not perfect. And so when you become perfect, then you can judge. That's also not what this is saying. But gosh, what a great out that is, isn't it? Is, is, is anybody that is approaching on your space and starting to make you feel a little bit uncomfortable about maybe what you believe or what you did or who you are, oh, you're not perfect. It's a great weapon, isn't it? But we're not allowed to use it, unfortunately. Number three, the standards that you're judging me, are, they're, not, they're not widely accepted standards. All standards are equal. Your standards are not my standards. You've heard that one, haven't you? Well, 
Have you ever thought about how much that is a standard? To, to say adamantly that your standards are not my standards or that all standards are equal, that's a pretty vehement, pretty strong conviction, isn't it? When we looked up at Nietzsche's quote, it says, convictions are the enemies of truth. That's a pretty strong conviction. It's making that statement. So that doesn't work either. And then the fourth one, which is most frustrating, I think, is, well, we can't know the truth. You know, you, you just, it's just impossible. There's so many ideas, there's so many ways, there's so many opinions. You know, it's just impossible to know the truth. So how can you say that you can judge me based on what's right and wrong? Well, we can't know what's right and wrong. How, how, how can you compare me to the truth when we just don't know? Fortunately, that's not true as well. See, if, if the unqualified statement, judge not, means universal, that we're not to evaluate or assess anything, then Jesus and Deepak are contradicting themselves. Jesus is saying, judge not. That's a judgment. So we know that this, this is not a universal, you cannot make assessments. You cannot make judgments. And then <clears throat> all standards, unfortunately, are not equal. I mean, even without biblical revelation, we know this to be true. There is a, there is, we are hardwired, hardwired with a severe sense of justice. I mean, my kids, oh my gosh, your kids, my kids, all kids, us, we are so hardwired for justice. I mean, have one of your kids, I've got five of them, so they get into this all the time. If I give two pieces of candy to one and one piece of candy to the other, it is a moral outrage. I don't have to teach them that. I don't have to teach them that, but that's not fair. That's not fair. They have a, such an acute sense of justice. It's, it's painful, and it's also, but someone is so right about it. See, we can try to dismiss the fact that, oh, well, you know, justice doesn't matter, but it does. It absolutely does matter. I was, and no matter how much we say, we cannot know right from wrong, people have an innate sense of what is right and wrong. It's, I was having a, a conversation actually with a guy in Asheville last weekend. We were in a service like this um, on a Sunday, and afterwards I asked him, hey, so what did you think about that? And he said, well, you know, I'm just so tired of people telling me that all the good stuff that I do isn't good enough. I'm like, wow, okay. I didn't hear that in that message, but great. So, and, then he went, and then he went on to say, well, you know, and then I pushed him a little farther. He says, well, you know, who's to say that the Christian idea of all this is right? What about everyone else's opinions? And then he said, you know, religion is the worst thing on the planet. And I'm like, okay, which one are you going to be? Right? Are you going to say that we can't know right and wrong, or are you going to convince me, like you're trying to do now, that your way is right and everyone else is wrong? See, you can't get away from it. No matter how we try to convince ourselves, we cannot get away from there is an innate sense within all of us that there are absolutes. And these absolutes make us uncomfortable. But, but, but to say that we cannot know the truth is the most arrogant of them all. The idea of relativism, that, that, that all paths to God are equal. That's, this is the illustration that's, that's given. There, there's a mountain, and at the top is God. And all of us have our own paths up the mountain. 
and, but none of the paths can see the other paths. They're all, from what they know, the only way. But the all-seeing eye from above sees the whole mountain and sees that, oh, everybody's really headed to the same place. They just don't know it. So, taking that step, you step back and go, well, then we, all paths are equal. Well, except for the path that you just described. <laughs> I mean, think of, the, think of the, the position of the person that's looking at the mountain. What a, what a God-like perspective that is. So the person that cries out for relativism is really saying that, you know, all of your paths are equally right, and none of them are wrong, especially mine. So it is the most arrogant, prideful thing to say that we can't know the truth, that all ways are the same, and it's all relative. Because you have to be in God's place to say that. Does that make any sense? That, that helped me as I tried to get my head around what's driving this offense at judgment. Here's the thing. Most, most, most postmoderns, most people that are really keyed in and have a, have a real intellectual conviction about relativism would say that what's wrong with the world is that we are making judgments. That making judgments is actually causing people to despair. If we would just, if we would just let everyone be the way that they want to be in their own subjective sense, the world would be more peaceful and people would be in less despair. Arthur Miller, who was the playwright, he just died in 2005. He, he, um, one of his plays called After the Fall. Um, he was the guy who did Death of a Salesman. I don't know if you read that in college or high school or if you've ever read plays or seen plays. or I don't see plays anymore because I'm too busy. But anyway, the, Arthur Miller said this... In his, in his play, After the Fall, he really takes a shot at that conjecture. The main character walks, walks through, the, through his whole life to come to a tragic moral epiphany. This is what he says. He says, for years I looked at life like a case, like a, like a case at law. Life is like a series of proofs. When you're young, you prove how brave you are or how smart you are and also what a good lover you are. Then, when you're older, you have to prove what a good father you are, and what a good husband you are. Finally, you try to prove how wise you are, how powerful you are, how successful. And under it all, there was a presumption that life was moving upward, that it was pushing towards a verdict. All I knew is I would be justified or I would be condemned for what I had done. There would be a verdict either way. I think that my disaster really began when I looked up one day at the bench and it was empty. No judge in sight. And all that remained, I realized, was endless argument with oneself and pointless litigation of existence before an empty bench. Which is, of course, another way of saying despair. What what he's convinced of in this moment is that all of the arguments, all of the fighting, all of the, all of the back and forth, all of the wrestling with figuring out what is right and what is wrong and what is real justice and what are the right things to do, what are the wrong things to do, and how can we, and how can we work toward this final verdict and be on the right side, it's all for naught. 
if there is no ultimate judge. And it didn't give him more peace, it actually gave him despair. See, we, we, we have to, to remain sane. We have to, we have to hold on to this idea of righteous, sober judgment. And the, the, other, the other conjecture is that if we would stop judging, this would be a much more peaceful place. That, that peace would reign between people. But let me, let me toss this out at you. I, I spent four months after college, I lived in Nigeria, which if we're talking about peaceful places, would not be on your list of top 100. Um, it's one of the most torn, ravaged countries by by military Islamic dictatorships and corruption. It's just craziness. I just got in, survived for four months, and got out. They had this, they had this term for their justice system. And it was called jungle justice. Where because of corruption, be, be, because there was no hope that if someone committed a crime against you, that you could take them to a court, and that you could take them before a judge, you actually committed jungle justice where you found enough strong people to go and exact justice for someone that wrongs you. And there were, they would tell me stories about how literally people would be woken up in the middle of the night, taken out in their front yards and shot by a firing squad. It's jungle justice. See, not having an ultimate judge or not knowing that you can find justice in a court or with a person doesn't lead to peace leads to violence. So I hope this is just some ways that we can think about, wow, maybe there is something good about judgment. And that maybe we shouldn't bring, maybe what we want out of the Scripture, maybe we, what we want out of Jesus to be a moral progressive, maybe that's really not what we want. Maybe that's something we're just enslaved to. So, if, coming back to our Scripture, if Jesus, if it's not, if judging is not doing away with absolute right and wrong, or doing away with the consequences that justice demands for both right and wrong, what is Jesus saying? Do not judge, lest you be judged. Well, here is one place where those outside of the church and those in the church The irreligious and the religious, all of us, agree. (laughs) We want to agree with Jesus in this point. I'm telling you, we do. He is condemning hypocritical, self-righteous condemnations. And we all hate that. I don't care what your belief system is. It doesn't matter if you're in the church or out of the church or beside the church. It doesn't matter. We all hate this. So if you're listening to this and, and you're, you're, you're on the outside of all this, you, you object with much of what's going on here, take heart in this, that what Jesus hates about the church and about people is exactly what you hate. Self-righteous hypocrites. Take some comfort in that. <clears throat> so, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log that's in your own eye? Jesus is saying, <clears throat> excuse me, 
that all of us, all of us, are guilty. Every single one of us. Despite our pretensions, despite how we pretend, despite how we cover up, all of us. We all have something in our eyes. No matter how much better you think you are than someone else, you have something huge in your eye. We're going to talk about more of that in a second. Isaiah 53 says, all of us have gone astray. All of us. Each to our own way. The righteous people into their self-righteousness. The irreligious people into their hedonism. But all of us have gone astray. Each to his own way. But God has laid upon, laid upon Jesus the iniquity of us all. He's saying there is a completely level playing field. And Honestly, though, in, 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 this, in this context, Jesus is being pretty sarcastic. As he's saying this, I can hear people chuckling that you've got a log in your eye. It's a sarcastic comment. It's like, you don't get it. You're, you're, you're trying to look into someone's eye, trying to take out something that's so small, and you've got this plank. I mean, I could see, see you, you laugh. That's exactly what I, Jesus might have done that. You know? I mean, he was a carpenter. He'd probably had a few specks in his eye of different sizes, and he would know. He could tell. This was a very common problem for him. Think about it. The log versus the speck. It seems absurd, doesn't it? But here's the thing. We always notice when other people fall short in the things that we think we do best. We always notice in other people where they fall short in the things that we think we do best. The, 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 the context of this whole verse is, is the Sermon on the Mount. And throughout the Sermon on, on the Mount, which I've been there in the, in the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, it's so peaceful, so beautiful. I wanted to talk about that some more. But anyway, just picture this beautiful, beautiful scene with grass and fields and peace. He's talking and he's, Jesus is talking about these Pharisees. Pharisees were this religious sect that held sway in Israel that they were so bent on priding themselves on being perfect and obeying the law. They would, they would do everything they could to obey the law perfectly. Everything that God had commanded and that wasn't even enough. They wanted to feel more righteous than that. They had to make up their own laws and then obey them and then condemn others for the laws that, with the laws they had even made up. They were uber self-righteous. Jesus is taking shots at them in this. So, but as we get into it, know that Jesus is not saying don't obey the law. In fact, when he was talking about the Pharisees, he said, you know what? They sit in Moses' seat. You need to do what they command. But don't do what they do. Then why is that? Look at their heart. Jesus completely exposes the self-righteous heart in Luke 18 when he tells this parable. You've heard it. I'm going to read it. This is Luke 18. It says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, 
adulterers. This is, this is preposterous, even like this tax collector. I thought he was praying, but anyway. Um, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But this tax, but the tax, and then he's done, and then, then the narrator comes back in. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The Pharisee, the churchgoer, the religious guy, the plank dude, tries himself in his own court. He's trying himself in his own court. He is, he is making up the laws. He is the judge. And he's judging himself and he comes out sparkling. There's another court. Way more important than your court or my court or the Pharisee's court. God's court. And the tax collector, he tries himself. He's being tried in that court. And how does he respond? I am a sinner. Would not even lift up his head. God be merciful to me. This man went justified. Now, you see the contrast. What's really behind this Pharisee's comments? This is the self-righteous judgment that Jesus is condemning. And it goes like this. Since the Pharisee had no sense of relationship with God or to God, had no sense of righteousness from God, all of his sense of accomplishment and all of his sense of, of being good, all of his sense of being worthy, all of his sense of being who he was, was established and came from his ability to obey the law. And we know that because he is making himself feel good about himself by condemning someone else. He's making himself feel better about himself by looking down on someone else. Now, before we are tempted, we go, gosh, that's so awful. Those Pharisees, man, I'm glad Jesus was getting on them. I'm going to submit to you that we are not much different. When Jesus says that we notice the speck in someone else's eye, we are noticing that others fall short in the things that we do best. Check this out. I'm going to try to behave with this, but I'm going to throw some statements up on the screen. I want you to see if maybe if, if you can relate to some of these. Maybe you've heard them in your own head. Maybe you've actually said them. This will be interesting. I'll try to behave. All right, go hit, hit the first one. I can't believe you voted for blank. Put anyone in the blank. Obama, anyone. Anyone. I can't believe you voted for anyone. What is this? Political righteousness. 
You ever have that sense? Whether, no, no matter what side of the aisle you're on, no matter what side of the aisle, you voted for Bush, you voted for Obama. Have you ever been so outraged that you can't believe that someone voted for blank? Think about it. It's rising up in you when you hear that. You're taking your righteousness from your political stance. Go ahead, hit the next one. I can't believe their kids were so fill in the blank. Obedient, disobedient, doesn't matter. Where's your righteousness coming from? Your kids. Hit the next one. How could you possibly believe the Bible teaches that? Getting your righteousness from your doctrine. That's, just, that's, my, that's mine. Go ahead. How could they spend their money on that? Have you ever sensed that about somebody? Have you ever said that in your head? you ever said that to your wife as you fall asleep at night? Maybe there's somewhere that you're getting your righteousness from. Go ahead. can't believe they eat that way. Oh yeah, vegetarians, carnivores, <laughs> vegans, just, I mean, just have at it. Do you, do you see where this is headed? Maybe you're, real, maybe you're a little more self-righteous than you thought. Maybe I am a Pharisee. Go ahead. They have no excuse not to have enough money. Boy, that, that, that one could get dicey. Um, go ahead. I'm so glad I don't have a job like that person. Our, our sense of superiority is everywhere. It permeates our subconscious, our conscious, our talk, our gossip. Go to the next one. At least I don't look like, boy, he's really let himself go. All right, and last one. At least I don't get the venti frappuccino. <laughs> I've prided myself for, for years on, uh, on just getting coffee um, at Starbucks and other places. So anyway, it's, it's amazing how quick we are to make ourselves feel better about what we're doing by condemning someone else. Um, it's... It's amazing where we're getting our meaning and our worth and our righteousness. So, and this is why we gossip. This is why we want to talk about other people's failings. There's, there's, something, there, there, there's something in us that loves to hear about other people messing up. And it's why we want to hear gossip as well. There's something going on in our hearts. There's, there's something, there's this deep void that just sucks people's failures into ourselves, into our souls and feeds on it. Like, mm, boy, mm, yeah, mm, boy, you read the headline of someone on CNN.com that has fallen in a scandal, and you're just like, mm, boy, mm, boy, poor, poor guy. Ah. The whole time you're thinking, man, good for him, man, he got his. We tend to do that with people that make us feel inferior. We tend to relish in it because they're finally getting theirs. Why do we focus on the speck? We desperately want to take other people's sins and failures 
and feed on them. Here's the underlying belief. You are what you do. You are what you do. Someone who's in this place, who is in God's place, who is in a self-righteous place, is saying, guess what? I am what I do. I am defined by what I do and don't do. Not by anything else. I'm defined by what I do and don't do. So guess what? You are too. And I'm here to execute the sentence. Whether it's consciously or unconscious, we make value judgments about people when we do this. Have you been executing justice recently? In your own court? Have you written anybody off? To really judge someone, really to condemn someone means to dismiss them as a person. Have you withdrawn from anyone? Are you avoiding anyone? Have you tried someone in your own court in absentia and passed a sentence against them and now you're executing that sentence slowly, ever so slowly, over time? I see some people smiling. (laughs) Yeah. We are. We are. Um, Only God has the right to do that. So how can we change? What is going to help us be self-righteous Pharisees in this room? What's going to help us? Go to Romans 10. Paul is talking about his, his fellow Jewish Pharisees. And he says this, he says, For I bear witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Why do we judge others? Very simply, we are ignorant of God's righteousness. We have to try to establish our own. See, this is, this is the only way to combat this, this cycle of feeding on other people's failures, of, of, of judging other people in our own court. Because we will look anywhere under any rock. We will, we will, we will get... We will do anything to get any sense of self-righteousness out of the smallest thing, even a cup of coffee. What can help us? What is the only way out of this? And it is to realize the righteousness of Christ. See, if we don't know Christ's righteousness, we are trapped. We're trapped in this cycle of having to get it from other places. It's, we're bound to obey all of God's commands, and we're arrogant when we do well, and we're depressed when we don't. It's a vicious cycle. We have no love from God. We have no love in ourselves. And since we measure everyone by the same standard that we judge ourselves, we don't have the capacity to love anyone. How on earth are we going to submit to God's righteousness? First of all, admit that we have none. Admit that we have none. It's a fatal blow. This is the most fatal blow to someone who is self-righteous, admit that you have none, that you can offer nothing to God, that there is nothing good in yourself. Admit this. Like Jesus is talking about here that 
compared to the specks in other people's eye, your sin is not a speck. Your sin is a log. And why, and why is that? Because not only are you doing the sin that's the speck in their eye, you're adding to that extra sin called self-righteous judgment. So not only do you have a speck like they have a speck, you have a log because you're judging them for their speck. So it's, it's what Jesus is saying. He says, your sin is worse because you're actually sitting in the seat of God. You're in God's seat. Jesus is coming for you and not with a hug. You're in His seat. Jesus is so vehemently angry with these Pharisee guys. So vehemently angry. It's, he has, Jesus, you'll, you'll look through all, all the Gospels. You see, has, He has compassion on those who know they don't measure up. And He's got nothing but a bat for those that think they do. Read it. Go back and read it. Matthew 23. Seven woes against the Pharisees. And it is not pretty. It is, it is his, the most harshest language Jesus reserves for people that think they measure up and judge others. To realize, too, like the tax collector, that you're being tried in God's court, not yours. And that despite all our pretending and all our fronting and all of our self-righteous judgments, that we, that we are our worst nightmares. We are. That we are doing the very sins that we said and we swore up and down that we would never do. That's us. Admit also that our failed attempts at establishing righteousness are rooted in our pride and the things that we try to get meaning out of. Our kids' behavior, our jobs, our money and the way we spend it. We are trying to suck meaning and definition out of those things. Not God. Like Romans 2 says, we have, we have fallen and we are worshiping and serving a creature rather than the Creator. Submit to Christ's righteousness. I'm so... The words matter. I mean, words matter. Submit to God's righteousness. It's... It doesn't say believe God's righteousness. It doesn't say know God's righteousness. It says submit. Because in order to receive all that God has done for us, in order to receive Christ's perfect life and that record as our own, we have to repent. We have to give up finding our own righteousness. We can't have both. We have to submit to the righteousness of God. It requires letting go. It requires giving up. It requires repentance. How to submit to God's righteousness. It's <clears throat> here, and here is the joy. All that Christ is, all that He was, His perfect being, His perfect life, through the cross, it's transferred to us. He takes our sin. He takes everything that we've been trying to make up for through self-righteous judgment. He takes it upon Himself. And His perfect life that God the Father says, I am pleased with this. 
all of that pleasure and all of that joy and all of that happiness and all of that fellowship that Jesus had with God. He was perfect. He was His Son. There was no separation, no anxiety between them. That's what we get. If we'll just submit to God and His righteousness. That is what is there for us. Everything that we're trying to attain, everything that we are so, so jealously trying to attain and judge others to attain, we get. We get. Now you may say, that's all well and good, but you don't have any idea. You don't have any idea what that person did to me. I have every right to judge them. You have no idea. So not only, Chris, what you're saying is that not only, are you saying that not only do I have to stop judging them, but gosh, now I have to forgive them too, but you don't know what they did. You know, I was, I'm reminded of a guy that I knew who <clears throat> suspected that his wife was having an affair with another guy. And I saw a letter that he wrote. And in the letter, he said, if what I think, essentially, if what I think is happening is happening, there will be blood. Think about it. That's a very righteous response. Can do you feel that? If you put your head in that scenario, can you find that emotion in yourself? I think that is an absolutely God-given sense of justice. There should be consequences for something like that. And you should want to exact them. And Chris, what you're saying is, you mean I can't judge someone for even doing that or feeling that way? Or, gosh, if I was in that place, you mean I couldn't judge the guy? This is what I'm saying. Not to minimize it. I'm saying God knows what you're feeling. Not to minimize it, but God knows how you feel. We have to realize that before someone sins against us, they sin against God. And God, instead of immediately judging all of us, and even, and even that guy, even that guy's sin, before, instead of doing that, instead of judging us, and even judging, this is God's perspective, God, instead of judging that guy for his sin, killed his own son instead. God killed his son and spilt his blood. You want blood? You want vengeance? You want justice? You get it. You get it through Christ. God got it through Christ. The blood that you want, the vengeance that you want, the justice that you want, the judgment that you want for what someone did to you, God got it. And you get it. This is the only way we can forgive. This is the only way we can stop judging others. This is the only way that we could ever find it in ourselves not to judge someone for what they've done. You want justice? Great. So does God. And you know what? He got it. 
He will get it one day when there is a final judgment and He got it by condemning His Son. And the same appeal that you want for justice, God is making that about you. God wants justice for how you've disobeyed. God wants justice for how you've rebelled. God wants justice for how you've condemned others. He wants that in your stead. And instead of His boot coming towards your head, He sent His boot towards His Son. And He executed justice upon His Son, Jesus, instead of you. And you were not judged. You were made righteous. And now God loves you in spite of all of this that we've done. That is the good news. That is the only way that we can even begin to not be the hypocrite. To not be the hypocrite. To into compassion and care, realize that we are sinners, that we that any fault that we see in someone else, that we have more than they do? Because the whole, the whole point of this, Jesus is saying, listen, when, when you remove the log out of your eye, then you can see clearly. You can see clearly to remove the speck out of someone else's eye. What, a, what an amazing thing that is. That if we will let God do this hard work in us, then we can actually be those that can take specks out of someone else's eye. Have you ever tried to do that? I remember my daughter Abby had a little piece of grass this big in her eye, and it was awful. I mean, everything was going crazy. The kids were screaming. Abby was screaming. It was like someone cut her head off. I mean, it was, it was awful. And, and as I kind of narrowed in, and she finally let me get close to her face, you, you know what I'm talking about? Okay, if you have kids, you, you know that they're, they're kicking at you, going, oh, help me, help me, help me, help me. Um, <clears throat> and so I got in there, and I couldn't get it with my finger because it was so small. And it was right next to her eyeball, underneath her eyelid. I'm just ever so gently pulled back the eyelid. My finger won't work. I got a paper towel. No, it's too hard. Paper towel was too rough for the eye. I had to go get a piece of tissue paper and just barely get close to her eye to where the, the wetness of that little splinter speck would attach itself to the toilet paper and lifted it out. All was better. Think of the care that goes into dealing with someone's eye. We can be this for others, but we have to be broken by our own sin. And we have to care about them, not use their downfall for our righteousness. Imagine if we could do this for each other. Imagine if we could be so centered on God and so centered on the cross and so centered on what God is for us in Christ Jesus that we don't have to judge each other, that we can receive God's righteous judgment upon our lives and receive His mercy and forgiveness so we can extend that to others. And, and anything that we want to point out in someone else, we realize that we are worse at it than they are. And we're saying, hey, we do this. We are wrong in this. Let's, let's acknowledge this. Let's acknowledge the specks in our eyes. And let's, let's let God so carefully, and so tenderly, through the Gospel, take the speck of our eye. Imagine what kind of community we could be if we would live like that. If our relationships were that deep. If we could trust the Gospel enough to be that intimate and to be that involved. With other, we can do this, God. 
I mean, all the issues that you're thinking about, all, 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 all the conflicts and all the, all the things that you feel right now that's standing between you and others, maybe in people in this room, the gospel is big enough for that. You can do this. God, God, God can do this for us through grace. Let's don't judge. Let's not remove ourselves. Let's not withdraw. Let's embrace God. Let's embrace each other. Judge not. Let me pray for us. God, we... We cry out, God, for your mercy because we know that, that we sit under one of Jesus' seven woes. Um, so God, we ask that you would, first of all, show us the, the gravity of, of, our, um, of our judgment. And God, that I ask that you would open up our hearts and our eyes to see the righteousness of Christ so we don't have to go get our own. God, help us even now as we take communion to, 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 to savor both of those things. Both own, God, help us own up to how we've judged. And God, help us own up to how righteous we are because of you. God, let them, us receive them both into our souls. For your glory and for our joy.